Hello, and welcome to Prophetic Voices, Preaching and Teaching Beloved Community, a podcast from the Episcopal Church's Office of Reconciliation, Justice, and Creation Care, where we explore the season and the lectionary through the lens of social justice. I'm your host, Reverend Shaniqua, Staff Officer for Racial Reconciliation, and I'm so glad you could join us. In this episode of Prophetic Voices, we'll be discussing the lectionary for Advent 3. Our amazing guests this week are the Venerable Paul Sneeve, who is an enrolled member of the Rosebud Sioux Tribe, the Archdeacon in the Diocese of South Dakota, and the Vicar of Teoshpeyewakan Indigenous Congregation at Calvary Cathedral in Sioux Falls. The Reverend Christopher McNabb, who serves as the Program Officer for Recruitment and Engagement for the Neighbor to Neighbor Program of Episcopal Migration Ministries. He lives in Seattle with his rescue pup, Lucky. And last but not least, the Reverend Canon Dr. Lauren Stanley, who is Canon to the Ordinary in the Episcopal Diocese of South Dakota, has been ordained for 25 years and has served in Virginia, Pennsylvania, Sudan, Haiti, and on the Rosebud Indian Reservation in South Dakota. Welcome, friends. Thank you so much for being here and being willing to be guests on Prophetic Voices. I'm so glad you're here. What do we need to keep in mind for Advent this year? What's up for y'all? It is such unsettled times, and we are so angry at each other, and the divide is just huger, and elections and politics and Supreme Court and racial justice and reconciliation, everything is just weighing heavily, heavily on us. And I think it's really important in Advent that we take a step back, we breathe in some God, and we make sure that we put some focus on God instead of that person on Facebook who's always triggering us mm-hmm. or the politician who says something or any of that stuff. I think this Advent, particularly because of the extreme anger that exists in the country, we need to focus on God. For a lot of people that I work with um, that are deep in their poverty and for a lot of people who are really struggling to make ends meet and who are really even concerned about getting enough food on their table, what preoccupies them most is just Christmas is coming. And the grandchildren and the children, every kid, they're looking at Christmas and and they want something wonderful. And it's really stressful when you don't have enough money to even feed your family, Hmm. but you're having to holy cow, I got to get presents. And um, and we forget that Advent is not a shopping season. <laughs> it's That's not what it's for. And yet, if we succumb to the stress of just the season, and never mind all the other stuff too that, that weighs on us, we we won't even see God. We won't see him because we're, we're stressed out about everything else. We are distracting ourselves from the stress of living and we don't see God. I think for me, one of the things I I notice, I've noticed of recent in a lot of social movements has been the demand for action now. And I certainly resonate and appreciate the urgency with which we need to be attentive to social justice, because especially for people who are marginalized, right? Like, I mean, how much more can people endure? And at the same time, I think Advent provides this sort of countercultural opportunity to learn what waiting means and to learn how to wait in expectant hope. And so I think, you know, as people of faith, we, we continue to strive towards justice, but this feels like an invitation not to put justice on hold but to learn how to wait for justice while simultaneously working towards it. You know, how can Advent be a time can teach us about waiting so that we wait on God and we wait on God's promises. We wait on what justice looks like for God rather than what justice might look like in our opinion. What are some messages? I think this week's theme is joy. What are some messages of joy have you noticed around during this time? This one may sound a little bit odd. There is joy in the midst of all this pain with the indigenous children and Secretary Deb Holland's Road to Healing tour. So in October, 
uh, Secretary of the Interior, was on the Rosebud Reservation, where I served for many years. And listening to the stories of survivors and of descendants of survivors and tremendous pain. But the joy was that these stories were being told and they were being listened to. You know, people were paying attention and there's a freedom in being able in a safe space to tell that story. Gosh knows that there's going to be a long wait for justice on that. To know that the stories are being told and, and people are, are paying attention. There's a lot of joy in that and freedom. There's different ways to experience joy. You can be joyful because everything's going your way. Everything's great. Breakfast was great. I got up on time. Everything is working great today. I'm joyful. I have a lot of reason to be joyful. But when we can see joy and experience joy when we have when we don't feel like it when it becomes something that's coming out of grace grace of god that is undeserved that we're not looking for that just comes out of an experience that on the surface may not even look that great but when we can see the joy when we can expect and see the presence of god and blessing us Wow, that it just sets us back. It makes all the bad things that, well, the things that look bad in our lives somehow look better because now the joy brings hope. Hmm. We have hope in spite of the harshness of our lives. I think that is so important to demand of God this joy. That's the beauty of Advent. And we have to remind ourselves constantly, we've got to look for it, got to look for it. It's there. It's there. you got to look for it. And when you find it, wow, it's great. I think one of the complexities of my work with EMM is that I oftentimes you know, don't see the end result, right? My job mm. is to, I work for the national office, and so I don't have the opportunity to meet the people with whom we are working with and walking with in this in this time. And so every once in a while, we get pictures of the families that are being sponsored. And just this last week, we received some pictures of people who are these little kids who were able to get some gifts through an anonymous donor to EMM. And, you know, we were able as a staff to sort of, you know, share that in that joy um, and seeing, you know, the joy of, of these little kids and the church being this connecting point between people who watch the news and, and want to do something but don't always know how and people who are in need and the church gets to be that bridge between them and as a priest i get to witness that joy all i did was make the connection you know other people did the hard work but yeah sort of the joy of of innocence you know watching those kids and seeing the ways in which these families lives have been forever changed because of the work of emm is quite remarkable hmm. I think of joy sometimes as community too, like as people who are in relationships and we're called to be in right relationship with one another, joy can come from that sense of community. Even if the community is experiencing pain or difficulty, you can find joy in the fact that you're all together. I know that I've seen that happen at funerals, for example, on reservations that nothing brings the Lakota community together like a funeral and they all come together and even though you know you're mourning the loss of somebody and that's sad you have joy in the fact that everybody's there together lakota we're we're really good at mourning that's the one thing we do really well <laughs> uh, <laughs> because we we deal with death a lot we uh, our reservation in south dakota the reservation our mission churches uh you'll have one priest serving 12 13 churches and they're doing it's not uncommon to do three funerals a week and, and under horrifying circumstances that these deaths can occur. And yet you go to the wakes, you go to the funerals, and you'll hear people laughing. And then one minute later, they're crying. And then they're laughing again. So that there's this balance of wellness in mm. our grief, our mourning, our pain. But we recognize that we can still laugh and joke around tease mm -hmm. our relatives. It's just what we do. We do it really well. And then we take good care of ourselves for that year following. We are very much aware that we can experience joy even in our darkest time. Mm. In fact, you better, you better experience it or 
Who wants to live that way? Ick. No, I'm not going to do it. I refuse. In spite of all the bad things that are happening to me and my family, there's still joy. We can still laugh. It's okay. Hmm. So let's talk about the Canticle 15, which is uh, the Magnificat, Luke 1, 46 through 55. It's one of my favorites. I have a t-shirt that has like Mary looking all aggressive with her arm raised. And it's like, he has cast out the mighty. Um, (laughs) How might we proclaim the greatness of the Lord through our actions? And by we, I mean, we as individuals or we as the church, how might we, or how do we maybe proclaim the greatness of the Lord through our actions? I love the Magnificat. I'm like you, Shaniqua. It's just this powerful, powerful statement that is made. And you contrast that with the uh, you know, meek and mild Mary. Oh, I don't think so. You contrast it with that, that hymn, that, that, that Christmas song that, God, it's, it sounds so good, but the message is terrible. Mary, did you know? Right. It's like, yes, she knew it's right here. Listen to the Magnificat. And so, I, I mean, I, that's one of the reasons I love it. And I think for us to proclaim the greatness of the Lord, both individually and as a church, is that we have to go out there and do the same thing. It means we have to stand up and say, this is not right. Mm. There is God's justice, which is going to roll down like waters. And this is what it's going to look like. A gospel from Luke about the um, woman who would not let the judge alone. Oh, right. Yeah. Until she got justice, right? I recall preaching on that and talking about this woman in in the gospel. This is who she is. And then listing a whole bunch of women like Emmett Till's mother. Mm. And, you know, this movie had just come out and Emmett Till's mother, who insisted on having the open casket so that people would see what was happening so that there could be justice. Mm. And I talked about um, a bunch of the women on the Rosebud who had testified when Secretary of the Interior was there for the road to healing and said, you know, these women are seeking justice. And every time we do it, I think that this is a powerful message for us to know that you don't have to roll over and play dead and you don't really have the option to roll over and play dead. Mm. We don't have that option to go, not my problem. And so, Chris, with the work you're doing with the refugees, this is all of our issues. And we don't have the option to turn our backs and go, no. And so the Magnificat just gives me the strength to keep going out there. And I have a sign in my office that says justice is a Jesus thing. And with the Magnificat, justice is a Mary thing. Mary's song that she's singing is this response that she has plenty of reason not to be real happy with this news that Gabriel just brought her. This is kind of scary. She's not married. She's suddenly pregnant. And her very life could be at stake and a lot to, to be grumpy about. <laughs> and, uh, but the very first line, my soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord, not her emotions, but her very existence, her soul. And I think uh, that's, that's a really good lesson for us. If we sit around and wait to feel the emotion to feel proclaiming the greatness of the Lord, if we wait to feel like it, uh, we're going to be waiting a long time. But she is uh, assuming, she's expressing faith, not, not necessarily belief, but she is expressing more than a desire of God's grace. She is embracing it, assuming that it's already there. And She's not going to sit around and feel sorry for herself. She's just assuming that this is going to be great. It's going to be great. It's so large that it is bigger than all of us. I like that. Uh, so that when, when we feel discouraged, when we feel down, when we don't feel holy, that doesn't mean we aren't and mm. we can't experience it. But we can, we can do it. We can do it. I think... Um, for Mary to express this, there's a holiness and she's embracing the possibility of holiness. She has no idea what's coming down the road, but she knows it's going to be good. And that, that's really cool. I think that's, that's the best part of it for me. I find it interesting, right? My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. The alternative translation that we are also permitted to use that day is my soul doth magnify the Lord. 
and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. And I think what that infers or what that assumes is that that Mary's been doing the work of spiritual growth, right? She's been, it wasn't just like all of a sudden she was brought out of obscurity into greatness. There was spiritual nurturing, right? That was happening, that prepared her for this moment. There was a reason that God called her into this place. And so I think for me, Advent is this time to go deeper, is this time to really develop that connection with God, right? If we've fallen off our spiritual practice, this is so easy to do with 101 things pulling us in 101 different directions. Really taking this opportunity in this moment in Advent to really reconnect with our Creator, our Redeemer, and our Sustainer so that we're doing God's work, not our work. Hmm. Where have you seen the mighty being cast down and lowly being lifted up and who needs to be lifted up right now? You know, it's much easier to answer the last part of that than it is to answer the first part of who needs to be lifted up. Those who do not have enough. Pure hmm. and simple. I think of my relatives over in Sudan. I served in Sudan for off and on for four years, meaning that the Sudanese government kept throwing me out hmm. because I'm American. And a Christian and a woman and a priest as well. I had lots of strikes against me. So we played these games. But, you know, South Sudan has been in civil war for so long now, three years. This is the third civil war. You know, and they need to be lifted up. The people of Yemen, who have been suffering now for seven years. The people of Ukraine, with the atrocities that are going on there. The people of Afghanistan. You know, and so... I can tell you everyone who needs to be lifted up. I'm frustrated that I don't see the mighty being cast down anywhere near as often as I would like it to happen. You know, and that's one of the things God and I have talks about all the time. You know, I think especially right now with Ukraine and Afghanistan, the two that bear heavily on my soul. Hmm. I was thinking about what you just said earlier, Lauren, about like how and this might not be being cast down, but like our indigenous folks and how, you know, we've sort of felt like we've been forgotten for so long. And just recently, granted, it was from, you know, these finding children in the boarding schools, which that's not great, but the part just how like that's been brought to light. And so people are starting to see what's going on and raise awareness about all of those issues that sort of people can turn a blind eye to, like, you know, our environmental degradation and how we don't always have clean water and, you know, I mean, all these different issues and missing and murdered indigenous relatives and all of that, how that sort of come to light. That would be something I would think of that we've seen recently. Thank you. That helps me a lot in my frustrations. It does. I'm very frustrated. Hmm. It's easy to get hung up on the physical appearances of things. And I, I've known mighty people personally, maybe not as mighty as the leader of a country, but people that, that have a certain degree of influence and control, either real or imagined, and to see them struggle when they're trying to do something that may or may not align with God's ways of doing things. Hmm. The struggle, the, what goes on in their very heart and their soul is palpable. Yeah, when I, I read of dictators and leaders of other countries that are doing horrible things, I often find myself wondering, good Lord, what is it like to be them? What is going on in their very hearts that they have to fight with every day to do the awful things that they do? And that being said, people that I know, that I also know that are simple, everyday people, but are struggling with all kinds of things, how they nurture and maintain their faith. And when they're not doing very well, it's heartbreaking. And so we have to remind ourselves that God exists in spite of us, mm. that God does really great stuff in spite of us, uh, in spite of our best, in spite of our worst. And that's going back to the Song of Mary, the Magnificat, 
wow, you know, Gabriel's bringing a, a fabulous message and hope and joy that if, if all we get hung up on is, is what we see with our physical eyes, we're, we're missing out on a lot of good stuff. Hmm. It's important, right, to pray to have God's vision of the world rather than our own. Yes, yes. Obviously, you know, my work and issues of migration, you know, Lauren, I definitely resonate with what you said, right? The plight of the people of Afghanistan and Ukraine, and, and certainly the United States has tried to respond with compassion to the arrival of both Afghans and Ukrainians to the United States, as we should have. You know, I think we did the right thing. And what strikes me is is still the plight of asylum seekers who continue to struggle without mm. government benefits, without resources, oftentimes more and more without connections here in the United States. What really gave me hope as a church, the Episcopal Church, we're not a large entity. I think oftentimes the good work that Episcopalians do doesn't always rise to the news and we don't always see it. But when migrants arrived to Martha's Vineyard, um, it was Episcopalians who said, yeah, well, we're going to take a break from our vacation and we're going to do this. We're going to do this work. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think that's what encourages me is everyday Episcopalians who say, yeah, we're going to do this work. And the hard truth is, right, if you can afford a vacation in Martha's Vineyard, you're, you're well off, right? You're doing well in the world oftentimes, not always, but often. And still, because of their faith, they said, this is who we are as people of faith, and we will do this work. And so, yes, it's not the dramatic casting down of the mighty, but it is God swelling up within them and saying, this is who we are. We choose to love these people. The people that are seeking asylum, the people that are struggling, that are hungry, Mary says, for he has looked with favor on his lowly servant. We have access to a tremendous amount of spiritual power. I always teach people when I'm doing a funeral or a wake, and for families that are really struggling with their grief and their mourning, I remind them, you have an obligation to pray. This is what we do. When we're weak, when we're suffering, when we're damaged and hurting, we are obligated to pray because God created us in a way that when part of us is weak, the other parts of us are much stronger. We see this all the time. And so when you feel weak, when you feel damaged, when you feel hurt, that's when you need to pray for other people. And you don't even have to know who they are. You could just see someone on the street that's struggling. You go pray for them. And then something miraculous will happen. That prayer that you gave out to God for that one person will turn around and come back to you and enable you to get through your tough time. You will be able to take a breath and take another step and to keep going on this holy road that God calls us to walk. That's encouragement. That's what we need to hear. Well, and to go back to the what happened on Martha's Vineyard, the majority of the people who belong to that church actually live there year-round, and most of them have service-level jobs. Even the people who work for the city government, it's... Mm, I didn't know that. The island government is what it would be referred to. They're not well-paid. And those are the first people who responded because somebody walk, came across one of the migrants walking down the road looking stunned and lost and stopped the car and said, you know, can I help you? Doesn't speak Spanish, problems, problems. Got on the phone to a bunch of other people who all reside there year round. And for the most part, you're either in the uber rich or you are in the service industry and you don't make a lot of money. And those are the people who responded. They're the ones who reached out to the high schoolers and said, hey, you all are doing AP Spanish. Can you please get over here and help us? <laughs> and and there were, there were some of the people who came to help were actually service workers, hospitality workers, you know, the housekeepers. That's really cool. Who mm. came to help. That makes the story even more powerful for me. Is that You're right, because there are common people are reaching above their station, as it were, because they believe in God and they want to do God's justice. And that is the message that is such an important message for us all to hear. Again, don't throw your hands up and say it's out of my control because this might be out of your control, 
you know, getting a law changed, but here's a person in need and you have a spare blanket. That is where I see it in action all the time. That in itself is prayer. It is. It's prayer put in action. Mm -hmm. That's supremely holy. I was thinking about the mighty being cast down. And one of the things that, that I can't remember if we, I I'm sure we must've talked about it in past years, but like COVID brought the mighty down, right? Like it brought our country to its knees and other countries to its knees. Now, granted, we have much more resources so we can do that better. It brought us, brought us down. The other thing I thought about is voting, right? Like Voting is one way if lowly, if everybody who's a member of the society has the right to vote, they can vote and bring down the mighty if we think of our elected leaders as the mighty. One of my questions is, what has the Almighty done for you? I have lived in uh, some extraordinarily different circumstances. I was a missionary in Sudan. I was a missionary in Haiti, both before and after the earthquake. I have served as a short-term missionary repeatedly in Honduras and I served for eight and a half years on the Rosebud Reservation. In each setting, sometimes once a day, sometimes once a quarter, my response to whatever was going on is, whose stupid idea was this, you know, to bring me to this place? Every time I have asked that question, and I have to tell you, there was a point in Sudan when I would ask it like three or four times a day, something would happen. There would be some response that was truly God-given. When I was super sick in Sudan and I had typhoid and malaria at the same time, which meant I couldn't travel home to the United States because I'd have to quarantine in London for three weeks. There was a pounding at the gate one day and these three elder women came in and they were mamas whom I met at one point, but I didn't really know them. They just came and said, we have to pray for you. So we're here to pray for you. And for the next hour, they just sat and said prayer after prayer and singing and laughing and crying because of other people who had died of these two diseases. When you have them both together, it is less than pleasant. And I've seen that over and over again. When I, I was not in Haiti the day of the earthquake in, Janu in um, January of 2010, I was actually at Virginia defending a portion of my doctoral thesis. But all the prayers that came that carried me through that devastation, I lost 14 parishioners in 38 seconds during that, and several friends as well. And all the prayers that surrounded me, and I could mm. feel that God was getting me through this very traumatic time. And so I've lived in places where there's been a tremendous amount of trauma. My answer has been, whose stupid idea was this? And God just kind of swoops in in the person of somebody you know, and an actually embodied in a human being saying, this is why you're here and we're going to get you through this. Hmm. I always think about my experience of homelessness and that experience of getting through that as my, one of the things that I think the Almighty has done for me. And same thing, like you just said, Lauren, having people who came and helped me, who I think of as angels or people being sent by God, right, to come and, and help. And you know, a lot of times it's not a big thing that somebody does, mm -hmm. but it's huge in that moment to you. To have people stop me, and Michael Curry was one who did it. He was the Bishop of North Carolina at the time. We met up for something. And at any rate, he said, I will be there for you. And when you are losing it, when you're standing on the edge and you know you're about to go over the edge, you call me. And every time that I needed him, he was there. Hmm. Breathe in some God. Let's say a prayer. You can do this. See ya. I mean, sometimes there were 30-second phone calls. But they were so important. And, you know, he took 30 seconds of his time to recenter me in God and to let me know that I was loved and I was going to get through this. So they're not always big things. A lot of times it's just the little thing. I can think of many, many times where God has touched me, has come to me and, and supported me. I think the ones I cherish the most are when I've been praying so hard and I haven't set my mind how I want the prayer to be answered. <laughs> <laughs> and then suddenly it becomes very clear that my prayer has been answered <laughs> and no, it's not the way I wanted it. And then I'm allowed to see 
no, this is better. It's mm. better. People who are mourning, who are, who are upset, and something is really awful happened to them or their family. And our immediate reaction when difficulty happens is why, why, why is this happening? You know, honestly, if God were to say, okay, this is why it's happening, would it really help? Would it help to know why? You know, maybe a little, but no, not really. I think a better thing is to be comforted, to have peace and a calmness of spirit. That means so much more to me when I want to panic. Circumstances beyond my control. Knowing why something crazy and awful is happening may not help that much, but mm. the peace that comes only from God, that is what's going to carry all of us through. And in Advent in particular, it's really hard to find that. It's there, but that's the big challenge, isn't it? To find God's peace in Advent. You know, we can complain about the system of Advent. So many people think, uh, how many shopping days left before Christmas? Uh, all of that foolishness. But really, if we change our thinking, and every time we see an advertisement for something that we, the seller on TV tells us that we got to have for Christmas, train our thinking so that that in turn reminds us to call us back to holiness. That's not unlike Lent, where you give up something that you like, and then when you crave that thing, that craving is should call us back to holiness, should get us back on track and realign our thinking. So that if we do it right, when we are assaulted with the insanity of the world and the insanity of our society, it can call us back to holiness but it takes some head games to try to change that but it, it is doable it can be done i see people do it all the time i think one of the things that theologically makes me wonder about right is what do we do when god is silent mm. when it doesn't feel like god has answered our prayers or it doesn't feel like god is present to us and theologically, right, we can understand God is always present. We can understand that maybe God is working in the background, right? Even if we, if we knew, we would disrupt God's work. You know, I think one of the incredible privileges of being a priest is walking with people when God is silent. Hmm. And when God does not seem to answer their prayer. Actually, I'm going to use that to lead into the, the Matthew which is kind of this story where, you know, John the Baptist is writing and kind of saying, hey, Jesus, are you the Messiah? Is this the person that we've been waiting for? And one of the questions that I wanted to ask is, you know, John has questions or doubts. And if John is this great holy saint, that gives us permission to have questions or doubts too, right? What questions or doubts have you had? And how did you get answers to those questions? Or what's the time that you did that? I know I definitely, during the homelessness thing, I definitely had questions or doubts and I felt like God was silent or maybe God had forgotten me, I think is how I felt. Mm -hmm. The first thing that comes to mind, right, is as a queer person, does God love me? Hmm. Does God care about me? Mm -hmm. You know, I think early on and we learn to conflate God's will and God's desires with the church and what the church wants. Mm. Right. Part of growing up and being a mature Christian is learning to separate those two, that the church is a human institution. And of course, I love the church. I'm a priest, right? But what the church wants and what God wants are not always the same. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things that really encourages me is seeing the Anglican Church in El Salvador right now has a ministry to LGBT homeless youth, right? They're walking with queer homeless youth. Mm. But still right like it kind of almost feels like the church has said okay great we got gay marriage we're good now right right all's fair no you've not atoned for the harm that's been done you've not you know are you setting up therapeutic centers for people to heal from the religious trauma that they've experienced from the, the religious trauma of watching a church debate whether or not queer people deserve to be in the same room 
Mm, that's significant harm that is done that we have, I think, have not atoned for. And I think we just want to sort of brush it mm -hmm. under the rug and make pretend that everything's fine. It's not. We've hurt a lot of people. And just because we're on the more progressive side now on issues of sexuality doesn't make up for the harm we've done. Right. I think that's true for racism too. That same kind of discussion is as a church, we want to jump straight from like, mm -hmm. okay, we realize we said, now we're going to go straight to the forgiveness. Let's move on. And, and there's all this stuff that happens in the reconciliation, right? The pieces of lament and how do we come back into right relationship when we've been out of it? You can't just suddenly say, okay, it's fine. There's going to be these moments of having to rebuild the relationship and rebuild the trust and relationships move at the speed of trust, right? Mm, amen. There's a lot of, and it's not just the church, this is in society mm -hmm. as a whole, get over it. Mm -hmm. It's like, yeah, no, no, that you can't, no. How do you get over hundreds of years of injustice if you're indigenous? How do you get over hundreds and hundreds of years of injustice if you're queer? How do you get over, you know, as a woman, mm -hmm. how do I get over that? Mm -hmm. You know, especially in light of re the recent Supreme Court ruling, you know, all of that. I have to say, though, it has never made me doubt Jesus being the Messiah. Right. It, it has made me doubt where Jesus is some days. <laughs> and then the relationship I have with God has a lot to do with the baseball bat because I'm a baseball fanatic. Then I get whooped upside the head <laughs> with that God's baseball bat saying, I am right here. What are you doing? Mm. The old tale that came out of the, the ghettos in uh, Warsaw, the rabbi is walking down the street. He's going from his house to the synagogue for worship. And he sees all these people in need and people are hurting and people who are sick and people who are hungry. And he's crossing a bridge and he falls to his knees in the middle of the bridge. And he's like, God, where are you? Why are you not helping these people? Blah, 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 blah. And just the huge, huge accusation against God. And then sat and knelt in silence and God was like, I made you. Mm. And then the rabbi gets up and goes, right, got it. As a descendant of Jews, so, so this is very, these stories are very important in my, my family. Many of my family disappeared in the Holocaust. So the, there's all of, all of that trauma that goes with that. I have to keep remembering every time I get frustrated and every time I have doubts about not Jesus as the Messiah, I have doubts about God's vision and dream for the world. Hmm. I like how the writer of this gospel, Matthew, that gives us permission through this story to have a faith crisis. John had a lot to have doubts about. He, he had good reason to to uh, struggle with his faith because it wasn't long ago he's walking around. He sees his cousin, Jesus, walking by and say, Behold the Lamb of God. That's him. That's the guy. And now he's in prison. Probably he's got a good idea. He's not going to live much longer. And out of his despair, I that could be one way to look at it. He's asking Jesus, are you it? Is this it? Mm. Are you the guy? And Jesus' response is perfect. You know, look at what's happened. Look what we're doing. Of course I'm it. And that's really the beauty of it. The spiritual fruit of our labors, the spiritual fruit of our prayers, that's what we have to look for. I always say this, there's a difference between having faith, a desire to have faith, a desire to have relationship with God and feeling like it. It's no accident that Jesus very often throughout the Gospels speaks of emotions as though they were spirits because they come and go. You can't count on them. They just come and go like the wind. They behave like spirits. Mm -hmm. And yet... Faith, though, this desire for faith, this desire for a, a communion with God, that keeps going. That keeps going. You can't just sit and wait to feel like it because it'll never happen. You got to get off your butt and you got to walk. We have permission to have doubts. It's okay. It's all right. Hmm.
I grew up a Roman Catholic and I went to Catholic school with Dominican nuns. This is important. Who <laughs> were very much into corporal punishment because this was the 60s and we still did those things. And it took me almost a full year to um, of going to mass every single day um, and all of that to go to my sixth grade teacher, Sister Loretta, who was really young and the habit. She was the first to wear the new habit, which didn't encase them all in black and white. And um, and telling her that I had doubts about Jesus and whether he had actually lived. Or was this just a story that we were being told? It took me almost a year to get up the guts to say this to her because, you know, little Roman Catholic children don't have these doubts. And you, if you do, you do not voice them to a Dominican nun. She was great. She was great. She looked at me and she said, do you believe that Julius Caesar lived? And I said, yeah, he's in the history books. Sixth grader, I knew my stuff, right? And she looked at me and she said, well, you know, the Bible is a history book. It's the history of our people. These are the original stories. And I remember a light, you know, bingo, boom. Oh, okay, fine. Now I can believe he lived. Then I had to admit to her I was also you know, doubting was, was he the Messiah? You know, then she and I had mm. some, some really good talks about that. And she helped guide me back onto a path of, you know, it's okay to have doubts. So you need to look around the world and see. And she actually was like, take the focus off yourself and look at the world. But it is okay to doubt. Of course, <laughs> I have to tell you, if Mother Superior had ever found out that she had told me that, um, I fear for Sister Loretta's life. I didn't hear that again, actually, <laughs> until I went to a Jesuit university. And I was blessed to have uh, teachers who had, uh, many of whom had been in Central America when John Paul II came down and said, you will stop what you are doing in Guatemala. You will stop what you are doing in El Salvador because we don't do liberation theology. And if you don't stop, I'm going to both um, defrock you and excommunicate you. Well, they were Jesuits. So he came back to the United States to teach liberation theology in the universities. And I was blessed to have them as my professors at Marquette University. Their answer was, mm. you can doubt all you want. And then what they would do is talk about what they had seen, the blessings that they had seen in the midst of these terrible civil wars and people disappearing and people being tortured and all of that. And they were able to put flesh on the idea of Jesus being the Messiah. This is who Jesus is, and we were never alone. You just talked a little bit about this, Lauren, but what do you think makes someone a prophet? You know, John the Baptist was like a prophet. What makes someone a prophet? And maybe who are some prophets that you're listening to right now or people you think have prophetic voice? I remember in college, I went to LaSalle University, a Catholic university in Philadelphia. It's run by the De LaSalle Christian Brothers, a Roman Catholic religious order focused on teaching, especially to the poor. And uh, my campus minister in college was, was a De La Salle Christian brother. And he said to me, he goes, Chris, mm. the kids decide when you're a brother. And I think that the same is true for prophets. The people decide if you're a prophet. You know, I don't wake up in the morning and think I'm feeling prophetic today. I think I'll be a prophet. It's a call that you walk into and honor that's placed upon you by the people. Hmm. Right in the United States, I think of prophetic people right now, like Brian Stevenson, right, who's calling out the injustice of our criminal justice system. I think of Greg Boyle, a priest working with former gang members in Los Angeles. Becca Stevenson, a priest, uh, an Episcopal priest working with victims of human trafficking and women caught up in, you know, street life there with her ministry at Thistle Farms. You know, I don't think being prophetic is always about you know, the work of like Jeremiah, right? I don't think it's always about being always calling out issues, although I think that is part of it. I think to me, what makes a person prophetic is they're willing to do the work mm. and they tell the stories of their people, right? Like Brian Stevenson, he just gets up on stage and he tells the stories of the people who, who have changed him. And Becca Stevens and Greg Boyle, right? That's what they do is they tell stories. And in standing with the people and being one with the people, change can slowly occur. Hmm. 
I think right now, William Barber, Reverend William Barber, mm-hmm. is definitely, I mean, I aspire, <laughs> I, I aspire to be him when I grow up. Mm-hmm. I'm getting closer to theoretical retirement. I don't think I'm going to retire personally, but <laughs> there are constraints placed upon those of us who serve in the church in many ways and cases. When I retire, I don't have those same constraints. And it's like, I'm going to go play with William Barber. I mean, the man is just incredible. Um, he is a prophetic voice, and I want to play in that arena where I'm not limited by my position. And for me as well, Oscar Romero. Every time I read uh-huh. anything by him, it truly strengthens me and fills me with a desire to, to go out and make the world a better place mm. yeah. and follow the dream of God that Verna Dozier wrote about so beautifully because she was a prophetic voice as well. That's all being a prophet is, is, is just calling people to a right relationship with their creator. It's that simple. And sometimes it involves pointing out to the power holders, you're not doing it right. And sometimes mm-hmm. it's even to the people you see every day, you know, we could be doing this better. We're called to a good relationship with God. That's the best kind of prophet. A good prophet has a message for everybody. So I'm going to ask one question from Isaiah, just because, well, I love this passage. It's really talking about a message of hope and I'm really curious about this. I took Greek instead of the Hebrew, but I like it talks about this highway. A highway shall be there and it shall be called the holy way. The unclean shall not travel on it, but it shall be for God's people. No traveler, not even fools shall go astray. And there's been so many times where I feel like I'm a fool and have gone astray in lots of different ways. (laughs) And usually some grandma will be like, no, no, get back over here. This is what you're supposed to do. And uh, I've learned to listen to my grandma's the grandmas in the church. They're very uh, wise. What do you think about this holy way? What might it look like? I have to be careful because in the Lakota language, a mm-hmm. holy road is a chanku wakan. And chanku meaning a road trail and wakan meaning something mysterious or sacred. But the danger there because the chanku wakan is the Milky Way and that's the route you travel after you die. And usually your relatives come back for you and they guide you across. And the stories that I've been told is it takes about, it's about a four day walk (laughs) to get to heaven. This is different though. Mm. This is even on earth. And in many ways, our Chankumakan begins right now. Our eternal life does not begin when we die. No, it begins right now. It begins yesterday. If we are immortal beings through the grace of Jesus Christ, our immortality has already begun. And so the holy way is just a good way to live. I like the phrase, the unclean, you know, shall not travel on it. And I think it's not because they're kept out. Yeah, you guys can't join us. You're not allowed. No, I think they're there. I think, you know, we all have our unclean moments. But when we do things that make us unclean, I often talk to people like, if you want to hear the voice of God, Clean your ears, because that's Mm. what keeps us from hearing the voice of God. Our uncleanness keeps us from seeing or hearing God, even though God is there. doesn't keep us from God, because God is always there. We commented earlier, what what do we do when God is silent? I think God can be silent, but most of the time, we allow ourselves our uncleanness to keep us from God, to distract us. It's kind of a gross way to think of it, this sort of spiritual earwax that keeps us from hearing God. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness. But that's, you know, it's a simple thing. We have to constantly clean ourselves. It doesn't keep us away from God. It just keeps us from hearing and seeing God. Hmm. I think of cleanliness right? Like spiritual cleanliness is oftentimes associated with purity. And I think in the church, when we hear purity, we we immediately think of probably because of the influence of Puritan culture and the evangelical Christian movement, we think generally of sexual purity. 
right? But I think what Jesus is calling us to, and, and I think what the prophet Isaiah is calling us to, is being pure of heart. I think the path in following God and following Christ is a narrow one. And there are things that will tempt us to hop off the path, things that even could be considered good, right? But may not be for us. To your point, Paul, right? Like our journey home to God begins yesterday, right? In the same way that Mary was called, her ability to respond in the opening line of the Magnificat, my soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Yes. I think it's because she's been doing her spiritual work, because she's been on that narrow path Mm -hmm. and she's her eyes on God. My question for us is, in what ways are we as individuals being called to walk that narrow path? Mm. And what is of God? And what Mm. is a distraction from that? Mm. And sort of allowing Advent to be a time that gets us back on the path. I love that. I've talked about Advent as being a time for the Hamblecha, like a time for a vision quest or crying for a vision, time Mm -hmm. to reflect and listen for God's voice. With Isaiah saying, you know, that the unclean shall not be there, is it how misused this has been Mm -hmm. over the centuries Mm -hmm. to say, you're in and you're out. You're clean and you're unclean. I admit freely that every time I look at this passage, and I get to that quote, I, it just, I immediately go off and go, okay, this is unjust, and this is unjust, and this is unjust, and I have a really hard time dealing with it. So I very much like what the, the three of you have said about this. I'm hoping it will take me away from, oh, I hate this line, to there's another way to look at it. I always stop at the, I, I hate this line. Hmm. There's lots of unclean people in the media today. They're easy to spot. But I think when I was a little boy, in the summer, I'd be down along the river playing with my friends. And man, we'd play hard. (laughs) And we'd be in the sun all day long in this dirty river water. And then I'd come home uh, reeking, smelling like a slough. I would walk in the door and mom would say, come here. And she would lick her finger and run her finger down my cheek. And if there was a slightly lighter, dirty color (laughs) under where she put that, she'd say, get in the bathtub. You need to clean. We all get dirty. We all get dirty. What a call to cleanness, to constantly clean and then clean again. The profit part comes out when we encourage other people around us, uh, high and low, Get clean. Get clean. Being unclean can lead to other problems. We have to develop a habit of cleaning, of bathing our spirits. And if we do that, staying clean becomes a little bit easier. I read this. I don't see this as excluding so much as it's. if you get dirty, it's going to cause trouble for you. Mm. I was thinking of clean in terms of like theological clean, because I agree too many people use this in terms of like sexual purity or some other thing, like expecting mm-hmm. you to be perfect. And I don't think that's what it's about. And I don't think sex is dirty, but I think like if we think about in terms of where is our theological perspective or, you know, I think some people get so tied up in all these prosperity gospel would be example of an unclean theology mm-hmm. or, you know, whatever, like some of those pieces we get all tied up in all that. How can we come back to a core root, which is like Jesus' message of love, maybe, or Jesus' message of right relationship? If you read it, though, in the context in which it is written, they are still in the Babylonian exile. This is first Isaiah, and they're still in the exile. And the unclean were Samaritans. They were the ones left behind. They were the diaspora. Mm -hmm. And so the unclean were those who had stayed behind and yet did not have a clean way of worshiping. So they were both the Samaritans and it's also a commentary on those who in the diaspora, in the exile, had crossed over and had taken on some of the Babylonian gods, you know, Mm. or whatever gods, you know, they they were no longer Mm -hmm. adhering to 
what was necessary to keep the faith alive. I mean, that's when Isaiah is talking about the unclean. That's what he's talking about. He's not talking about lepers who aren't clean or women during their time of the moon or anything like that. He's talking about those who are not worshiping according to the rules that Isaiah was defending during the exile. Mm. I had a, a professor in seminary who was a rabbi and he used to come in and he would rail at people who wanted to read it only from the New Testament perspective, from the gospel perspective. He's like, these Psalms were not written for you. So quit doing this. You have to read them the way they were written. And the same is true with Isaiah. These were not, this was not written for you. This is for 35. This is first Isaiah. We are off in exile. <laughs> so keep in mind what we're trying to do here. So, okay, Jack. but he was right i mean it it needs to be read in that context so and the fool apparently is a reference if i'm not mistaken it's psalm 14 i believe the fool says in his heart there is no god a common theme that kept coming up in this time period the people who said there is no god we're in exile there's no god so that's the fool Mm. that isaiah is talking about and yet there's hope for him no traveler, not even fools, will go astray. I like the latter part of this uh, uh, pericope, this uh, this section, where they're describing no lion shall be there, no ravenous beast, you know, describing such a, a wonderful place. I've been, this has happened several times where I've been with elders who are near death and usually are a day or so or even less where God has permitted them to have a dream or a vision where their relatives come and take them over to heaven and show them what's coming very soon. One grandmother in particular, she told me, I had this dream and I saw all my relatives and the grass was so beautiful. It was such mm. a rich green. The air smelled good and the water tasted sweet. Several elders experienced this near their death where they described the water tasting sweet and tasting so good. This brings me to that vision, a place that is safe. There is no physical limitations to you. The air is sweet, the water is sweet, the grass is green, Mm. and we are surrounded with our relatives that we've been separated from way too long. What a holy place. So my last question before we go is really, what suggestions do you have for preaching Advent 3 for this year? What preaching tips do you have for this particular lectionary? Everything in here is about justice. Everything in here for me is about justice. It's a tremendous call that we are the ones who are to go and seek justice and do justice, not in the future, but now, as the Talmud says. I can't tell you how many times I quoted this just in general. The eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. The lame shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the speechless sing for joy. Mm. Well, that to me is a total call for justice that that's what we have to be working for. From the gospel, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news brought to them. Good news to the poor is a loaf of bread when they're hungry. It's a blanket when they're cold. It's somebody standing up for them and saying, you are welcome here, like those people on Martha's Vineyard who ran into migrants who had been dumped on their doorsteps and said, hey, come with us. Come on. We got food. We got, come on. We're going to get somebody who speaks Spanish. So for me, Advent 3 and, you know, the Magnificat, I mean, it's a call for justice. It's all about working for justice. End of sermon. (laughs) Earlier, I mentioned um, Brian Stevenson, author of Just Mercy and the founder of the Equal Mm -hmm. Justice Initiative. He often says that our call is to become proximate to those who are suffering. And I noticed in Matthew's gospel that John mm-hmm. is in prison. 
And it's from this place of imprisonment that he is beginning to ask these questions. Are you the one? Mm. His disciples go to Jesus, right? They walk to Jesus, presumably. I guess it's twofold. One, we are invited to get proximate to those who suffer. Mm. And we are called to walk with them. Or to sit with them. The epistle from James says we must be patient. Strengthen our hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. Yes, it, it is about justice. You're absolutely right, Lauren. But I also think it's learning to wait for God's justice. Not ours, but God's. And oftentimes that only comes when we are willing to risk proximity to those who are other, mm. to those who suffer. In the Gospel of Matthew, we are permitted to see two viewpoints in this pericope, in this section. Mm -hmm. We hear Jesus uh, responding to John. John is questioning, are you the one? And Jesus responding, go and tell him what you hear and see. And then the second viewpoint, Jesus then goes on to talk about John because he was a rough character. Where is he now? Look what he's doing. He must have done something wrong. And he's like, what did you expect? He is the one. He is the one that is preparing. He's the messenger who will prepare my, your way before you. And then this wonderful quote that he gives us, Truly I tell you, among those born of women, no one has arisen greater than John the Baptist. Yet the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. That's beautiful. What a word of hope to offer mm -hmm. to all of us who are lesser people. And this is the beauty of existing in God's kingdom, that the least have the real power. Mm. The least can pray and pray powerfully. That's beautiful. I love that we're given these two views from John's view and then from Jesus' response, his view. That's just so cool. I think I would probably figure out the congregation that I was preaching to and kind of think about like, if they're in this place of sort of hopelessness, I would talk about that. It's okay to doubt and talk about that part of the gospel and then shift them to that message of Isaiah and use that as the hope to give them the hope for the future or the Magnificat. You could use that too. I think if I was with a congregation, like our standard congregation, mm -hmm. where they just come to church on Sunday and do whatever they want. And, you know, they're like, we're just going to sit here and we'll write a check if we want. If it's one of those kind of congregations, that's when I push them to that message of justice. And we have to be oh, the yeah. hands and feet of Christ, helping the blind to see and the deaf to hear and the poor to have good news and the lame, you know, all of that, that would be like the message. I so it really kind of depends. Lately, I've been preaching at a white congregation and then a native congregation. And I, I preach very different messages to them. Um, <laughs> yes. You know, based on the privilege that they have and the amount of money and income they have. And so it's a little interesting to see how the sermons will shift. On social media, I think it was you who had asked a question, how do you determine what to preach and like this? And I think I made a comment. What do your people need to hear? What do your people need to hear? I think I can only assume it was one of your professors says, oh, but how do you know? How do you determine? It's like, oh, shut up. <laughs> you know what your people need to hear. Oh, for, don't get all airy-fairy on me. You know, I mean, gee whiz. <laughs> but uh, it does my heart good to hear you say that, Shaniqua. To say, listen to your people. Listen to your people. That's great. Hmm. And I have to echo too, Shaniqua, because I'm in a different congregation every week. And so it very much makes the determination if I'm on one of the missions with the Lakota Dakota, the message is different. Right. It is definitely different than what it is when I am in a non-native congregation, a, a white congregation. And I've been doing this job now for 15 months. I've been preaching though, thank God, for 28 years. So I have to put myself in a different mindset. Mm. when I'm working on the sermon. And so it is among the, the Lakota and Dakota that I tend to, uh, we have no Baptists in my family background. It's like none, not allowed in the door. But that's when I tend to get very Baptisty, and just having a really good time, rip snorting, fun time. I don't feel that 
freedom to do that as much when I'm with the white congregations because a lot of them are people of privilege and they're not going to hear it the same way. Thank you so much for being willing to be guests and to share your wisdom and your time. I really appreciate it. And I know our listeners do. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. If you want to learn more about Beloved Community, visit episcopalchurch.org forward slash beloved hyphen community. Thanks to our guests, Chris, Paul, and Lauren. Thanks also to our production team, especially Chris and Asma. If you were lifted up by today's conversation, please rate, review, and of course, share our podcast. Until next time, let your light shine. You're invited to join thousands of Episcopalians, neighbors, and friends this summer at the Love Always Revival at the KFC Yum Center in Louisville, Kentucky. On Saturday, June 22nd, get immersed in inspiring worship and community, deepen your love for God, kick off the 81st General Convention, and extend a warm welcome to folks discovering the Episcopal Church. The revival is free to attend, so bring your friends. If you're from a neighboring diocese, check in with your diocesan revival champion to find out about group travel options. You can find more information along with registration at iam.ec lovealways.